So I'm sure that it would surprise absolutely none of you to find out that I used to work on a ranch. Uh, like a complete like, bottle feed the baby goats, like wrangle, wrangle the horses, gather the chicken eggs, slaughter the pigs, castrate the bulls, get rammed by the bulls after you castrate them, the whole thing. Like I used to work on a ranch, for real. And every morning, I'd wake up to the sound of a rooster, and every night I'd go to sleep with the sound of, uh, you know, wolves in the background. It was a different and obscure, you know, kind of unique period of time in my life. But believe me, for the summer of 2009, I was a cowboy. (laughs) Would it surprise you to know that I was born in the 80s? September of 1989, but I did still see almost four whole months of the 80s. What if I told you that there was also a time that for a brief period of time, I ranked in first place out of over one million March Madness brackets on ESPN. Would that surprise you? I mean, I guessed on every single line and completely forgot about it until a friend called me and said, hey, is your ESPN username Jeremy McNair? And I said, well, yes, I'm not super creative. And he said, because you're about to win a million dollars. I did not win a million dollars. I'm not really a basketball guy. Uh, And yes, I did kind of see like a brief flash of the 80s, but I'm not really an 80s kid. Yes, I did spend 10 weeks working on a ranch, but that doesn't really qualify me as a cowboy. Do, Do you have stories sometimes that you have to tell like with a disclaimer? You know, like, yes, technically it is true. I was a cowboy, but no, I'm not a cowboy. You know where your memory doesn't quite line up with what reality is? There's like a little asterisk next to your experiences, and down on the bottom of the piece of paper you say what the disclaimer is. Yes, this happened, but no, it's not what normally happens. I can't claim to be a professional sports gambler just because of that one time that I was awesome at basketball bracketing. I can't claim to be from an 80s generation just because I was a literal newborn and then all of a sudden it was the 90s. Uh, I can't make a claim to be a cowboy. I've actually never owned a pair of boots or a cowboy hat. You have to own one of those two things to be a cowboy. Actually, this is funny. Most of you uh, have, you know the Birchfields. I don't know where they're at. They're somewhere in here. You know the Birchfields. I officiated their wedding, and everyone in their wedding party uh, wore cowboy boots. So I'm standing up there officiating the wedding. I'm like, well, I guess I need cowboy boots too. I didn't own boots, so I asked Brady, who plays electric guitar, I say, hey, can I borrow some boots from you? And he said, sure, but you're going to have to get some bigger pants first. So... So, so I got some bigger pants and, uh, with extra leg room. And uh, I didn't know if the pants went on the inside or on the outside of the boots. I still don't remember. <laughs> uh, and this is actually how cowboy I am. This is, this is the extent of my cowboy right here. There's an asterisk next to my experience. And yes, technically it happened, but no, it's not really my reality. I'm not really a cowboy, even though we pretended to be for a minute. Do you know someone who, you know, did something one time and then they pretend to be the expert at it? Like, they've been outside of Texas one time ever, and now they're the guy who, like, tells you their, you know, their travel advice. Uh, 
or uh, you know, like they won a dodgeball tournament as a child, and now they're a professional sports commentator, or like they do something one time, and now they are the expert at it. Yes, technically it happened, but there's an asterisk on how deserved the level of expertise is. What we're going to see this morning is that God's people are living their lives with a bunch of asterisks and disclaimers. Yes, technically, you're building a temple. Good job. But only after being disciplined into doing so. Yes, you're doing what God asked of you. But only after you wasted time focusing on yourself instead of the ways of God first. Yes, technically, you are the people who have put their time, energy, and resources into finally recreating a holy space for God to dwell. But it's with this asterisk that... Just because you're surrounded by holy things doesn't mean that you, yourself, are holy. So, we started our study of Haggai last week. We're going to finish it up today, get through an entire book in two weeks. I feel really great about that. If you weren't with us last week, we started this journey through what is an often overlooked and pretty much an always underappreciated book of Haggai. It's near the end of your Old Testament. It's a short book that's really a collection of four different prophetic words or sermons that Haggai spoke and preached to the nation of Israel. Uh, this is just after they had been released from the Babylonian captivity. So they've gotten back to their homeland. They're now under the rule of a Persian king, Darius. When their land was overtaken and overthrown, it left the glorious Temple of Solomon in complete ruins. So now... The nation of Israel has been challenged with rebuilding the temple of God because the temple was the dwelling place of their ultimate king. And by restoring the king's house, they would ultimately restore their union with God himself. But like most Old Testament stories go, and if we're honest, like most of our stories go, the people don't fulfill their God-given assignment. Instead, they have to be kind of prodded back into alignment with kingdom priorities. Instead of being focused on the restoration of their union with God, instead, the people concern themselves with the petty matters of their own lives. So the Israelites return home. Instead of placing their full energy and all of their resources into the quick restoration of God's temple, and ultimately, and more importantly, the restoration of their union with God himself. Instead, they focus in on building their own homes. They focus in on re-energizing their own economy. They focus in on planting their own harvest. So, it's four prophetic words in four sermons to the nation. Haggai comes in with his first message. He says, guys, you've been given assignment not to further your own bountiful living, but to magnify what living out of the providence of God can truly look like. You're operating from a place of self-filled priorities. Don't delay your obedience to what God's called you to do. Don't set up your own task list and put God at the very bottom of it when God's already completed the task list for you. He's told you what you're supposed to do. Reprioritize Him and get your act together. Do what He's called you to do. This was message one. So the response of the people was to listen, to obey, and to begin working on the temple's rebuild. And it took them less than one month to stop. 
because they were discouraged. They reached this point of discouragement. The temple isn't looking like what it used to look like. It's not as ornate. It's not as grand. It's not as beautiful as what they remembered. And instead of pushing through with perseverance, they just stop working altogether. They're crippled by the comparison of what the former glory looked like. So they just stop altogether. So Haggai's second message to them is this. God is with you whether you have a temple or not. And his glory is far greater than any glory you can try to create here in this temple. The temple's glory is only anything because of the glory of God. And he's with you, with or without a temple. So don't give up. Keep pressing onward because the work that you're doing will one day be so much greater when God's glory will forever be with his people. God encourages the people to persevere because the future that he's building ahead is far more glorious than the temple that they build now. And so the people get back to work and they start building again. And in the same way, we are people who have been released from our bondage. We've been released from our captivity of sin. And we would be far off better investing in the things of an eternal kingdom than in the things of our own hands. We are so quick to push the ways of God further and further down our list of to-dos that we miss out what truly living looks like. It's time. Zoom out. Look at the distribution of your time. Look at the way that you've organized your energy and your resources and move ahead with an eternal perspective. Take the plastic crown off your head and stop pretending like you're the ones in charge and instead rebuild lives that display Christ as your king. And that's message number two. We could have done that a lot quicker last week. <laughs> Prophecy one points to misplaced priorities. Prophecy two points to short-sighted perspectives. Their priorities made them delay their obedience to God in building the temple, but their perspective made them halt their progress so they couldn't get over their past. Prophecy number three, this is new as of today, prophecy number three points to something completely different. It's December 18th, 520 BC. It's been two months since the previous prophetic word was given to them. Now, the people are building. They're building the temple that was completely destroyed and left in ruins by the Babylonians. They're rebuilding it, again, with the purpose of restoring their union with God. If the temple exists, then God's place, God's dwelling exists. So they're rebuilding the temple. Um, they're actually doing it. They're doing the work that God has called them to do now. The temple is actually being constructed, but they're going to come to another pause. And this time, the pause isn't really their fault. They're working, but it's God who gives them pause. This time, it's God who stops the work from continuing. This time, God says, hold on, Let's get something in order before you continue this. See, the Israelites have fallen victim to one of the greatest traps of humanity, and that is this, having such a high view of yourself that it becomes inflated beyond the view of who God made you to be. The Israelites had such an inflated view of self that they pushed themselves beyond the image that God actually created for them. It's this idea that the work that we do makes us more valuable to God. It's this idea in the Christian world, world that the work we do for God makes us holy like God. So the people get back to work after Haggai's second message to them, 
They're building. And now after God's reminder that their work had eternal purpose, what they're doing is they're conflating the holy temple with what they believe to be their holy work. And to further complicate things, because they are working on the holy temple, they believe themselves to be holy and thus worthy, and even worse than that, demanding of God's blessing. So this is where we're at with the third message. God is going to correct both of these mindsets through his prophet Haggai. God wants to show them that the act and the art of doing religious things is not what makes you holy. It's not enough to do the religious things to earn God's blessing. God is going to show them how they can only know holiness and blessing as a result of his grace and not the work of their hands. Verse 10 of Haggai chapter 2 says, On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord of armies says. Ask the priest for a ruling. If a man is carrying consecrated meat in the fold of his garment, and it touches bread, stew, wine, oil, or any other food, does it become holy? The priest answered, no. Then Haggai asked, if someone defiled by contact with a corpse touches any of these, does it become defiled? The priest answered, it becomes defiled. I have to be honest, this is like a doozy to understand. Uh, like I, I read it through uh, the first time and uh, just kind of stared at it for a minute. Like what in the world am I supposed to say about this? You know, like what, what is he even talking about? How in the world is this even preachable? I wrote and rewrote notes and notes over this section and each time would realize I was interpreting it wrong and then start over again and there's a reason for that. There's a reason why this is kind of a confusing line of questioning because it's all a bit of a riddle to test the priests. The people have become so accustomed to feeling good about how great they think they are that they're being stuck in this cycle of self-dependency. So Haggai employs the knowledge of the priests and uses their expertise to illuminate a much greater issue. First off, we have to understand who the priests are because the priests play a very specific role in the story. Remember last week, we noted that Haggai was repetitively calling God the Lord of armies or the almighty God. This is a common thread with other prophets. In Malachi 2.7, uh, it references what the role of the priest is in relation to the God of armies. It says, For the lips of the priest should guard knowledge, and people should desire instruction from his mouth, because he is the messenger of who? The Lord of armies. The role of the priest at this time was to guard the knowledge of the Lord. Their role was to present instruction from the Lord. Their role is to be a representative messenger of the Almighty Lord. The priests served as people who were commissioned with a purpose of revealing God's word to the people 
and then leading them in a role of mediation. They're kind of this in-between person. They are messengers. And with that responsibility to present the desirable message of God's truth came the job of understanding the law to its fullest. And when you understand the law to its fullest, then you can have confidence in both the knowledge of the law and the practicality of how to apply the law. So they had to be book smart, but they also had to be street smart. They had to know what it is they knew, and they knew what to do with what they knew. So they needed to uh, have it in their mind in such a way that the people not only understood the law, but that they craved knowing the word of God. So, by command from God himself, Haggai brings the priests together. He wants to test them on these judgment calls. If your job is to know the law and know how to apply it, let's test it. If a man, carrying consecrated meat in the fold of his garment, and it touches bread, stew, wine, oil, or any other food, does it become holy? There's so much contextually specific information in these sentences, so we have to like dive in. We're going on a deep dive together for a minute uh, because Haggai is asking a trick question. The setting that we're reading, it's very much rooted in the time of animal sacrifice. And beyond that, there are actually two types of animal sacrifice presented in Leviticus where much of the Jewish law is contained. So remember, it's the priest's responsibility to be a student of the law in God's word, and it deciphered correctly to distribute to the people. So there's two different kinds of offerings, two different kinds of animal sacrifices. The first type of sacrifice is the sin offering. This is the one that we're pretty familiar with. We've heard of this one. Not because it's like applicable to our Christian practice now, but because this is the one that we hear about the most in Scripture. This is the one that we have heard sermons over. We, we know about the sin sacrifice. The people would sin, and it was their responsibility to present an unblemished animal to be slaughtered as a sacrifice to atone for their sins. Remember, the priests are mediators between the people and God, so the priests would present these unblemished sacrifices to God, and it would be the mediation that was required in that very specific covenantal period to restore union with God after the people sinned. The animal sacrifice is a representation of the deserved punishment of the sinful person. It's mandatory if people were to be rightly reconciled back to God. So this is where it gets tricky. The, the sin sacrifice of meat that has been consecrated or rather dedicated with the purpose of, uh, of sacrificing if it's been consecrated uh, with the purpose of taking on holiness, well, what, is, what does Leviticus say about this kind of sacrifice? What, what is the actual ruling in the law? Leviticus 6.27 says, Anything that touches its flesh will become holy. And if any of its blood splatters on a garment, then you must wash that garment in a holy place. Everything that touches meat from a sin sacrifice becomes holy. This is affirmed elsewhere in Scripture too. Exodus says, whatever touches the altar will be consecrated. So if it even touches the, the altar of dedication, then whatever touches that altar becomes dedicated as well. Ezekiel says, you can transmit holiness to the people through the clothes of the priests. So this is a thing. A sin sacrifice has transferable holiness, but the meat is purposefully clean. It's from an unblemished animal, unblemished both internally and externally. So no spots, no weaknesses, no disease. And that sacrifice would take the place of sin that it was being presented for. That's the sin 
offering. The second type of sacrifice is called a fellowship offering. A sin offering is mandatory. You sin if you want, and mandatory for this time, for this covenant of people. If you sin, you want to get right with God, you have to make a sacrifice. The fellowship offering is voluntary. A sin offering is made to appease God. A fellowship offering is made to praise God. A fellowship offering can be given to God as just like a simple thank you for his generosity, for his providence, for his deliverance. The people look at God, they see how good he's been to them, and their one response to that blessing is to return a gift back to him. They see that God delivered them from their enemies, they make a sacrifice to commemorate his divine protection. A thank you gift. And what a beautiful practice, too. To be so aware of God's goodness and his protection and deliverance that we stop to notice what he's done. And we stop to give him purposeful praise, to stop and view our lives and our resources as an offering back to him because he's been so good to us. So thank you, gift. A fellowship offering is also symbolic of a vow that's being made as a promise to God. I'm reminded of in the Old Testament, Hannah brings her baby boy Samuel to the temple to be dedicated to a life of service back to God. But she also brings a bull to accompany her vow and fulfill this type of fellowship sacrifice. It says, when she had weaned him, she took him with her to Shiloh, as well as a three-year-old bull, half a bushel of flour, and a clay jar of wine. Though the boy was still young, she took him to the Lord's house at Shiloh. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. Please, my lord, she said, as surely as you live, my lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this boy. And since the Lord gave me what I asked him for, I now give the boy to the Lord. For as long as he lives, he is given to the Lord. And then he worshiped the Lord there. This is a vow. She's making a promise to God. And to accompany that promise, she's giving an actual sacrifice. This is a fellowship offering. So this is what the Levitical law accounts of the rules surrounding fellowship offerings. I know this is a lot, but let's read it. Now, this is the law of fellowship sacrifice that someone may present to the Lord. If he presents it for thanksgiving, in addition to the thanksgiving sacrifice, he is to present unleavened cakes mixed with olive oil, unleavened wafers coated with oil, and well-kneaded cakes of fine flour mixed with oil. He is to present as his offering cakes of leavened bread with his thanksgiving sacrifice of fellowship. From the cakes, he is to present one portion of each offering as a contribution to the Lord, and it will belong to the priest who splatters the blood of the fellowship offering. It is his. The meat of his thanksgiving sacrifice of fellowship must be eaten on the day he offers it. He may not leave any of it until morning. But if the sacrifice he offers is a vow or a free will offering, it is to be eaten on the day he presents his sacrifice, and what is left over may be eaten on the next day. So, back to Haggai's question. So the meat's been offered as a sacrifice. It would be wrapped up. Normally what would happen, you can think of it as like an apron. They would take the meat that was ready to be a sacrifice, they would fold it up in their garments to protect it and keep it clean, like an apron. And the question is this, if bread or stew, or wine, or oil, or anything else, if, if that comes in contact with even the fold of the garment that holds the meat that was set aside for holy purposes, then does the bread 
and the stew and the wine and the oil also become holy. So is holiness this transferable thing? Haggai, what Haggai is doing is he's testing the priest's ability to make judgments in accordance with God's word and with his will. This is their job. On one hand, anything coming in contact with a sin offering would become holy. So the answer to the question would be, yes, the holiness would be transferred. On the other hand, meat from a fellowship offering could be enjoyed with other food with just no implications at all. Just eat it in time. Don't let it go bad. So they look at the evidence in front of them. They see that the, the circumstances aren't quite clear between sin and fellowship sacrifices, but what they do see is the abundance of bread and stew and wine and oil, which is a common thread from Hannah with Samuel and also the Levitical law. They see all these things. They make a judgment call based on the evidence, which is, again, the role of the priest, and they answer, no. No, it's not holy. Something just touches the fold of a garment that had holy meat. It doesn't become holy. It's a, it's a fellowship sacrifice. No. That food is just kind of neutral. That food doesn't have any kind of spiritual implication, no kind of spiritual purpose. It's just food. It doesn't become holy just by coming into contact with, uh, with something that has been dedicated to a holy purpose if it's just a fellowship offering. And they're right. This is a fellowship sacrifice. You can't accidentally catch holiness from the meat given in an offering of thanksgiving. The food doesn't become holy by proximity. There's no contagion. There's no pandemic of holiness that they might catch. Holiness is not a communicable disease that can just be transmitted casually. Think about this practically, like in real life terms. No one told me that my children would be disgusting. Like, I knew that your children were disgusting, but no one thought to mention to me that my children would be disgusting. And when their dirty little hands start touching all over my walls that are clean, the clean walls don't wash their filth in like a moment of Mr. Clean magic. No, their filth makes my walls dirty. Healthy people don't transmit their healthiness to sick people. Bland food doesn't make spicy food less interesting. Pouring a bottle of Ozarka into the Trinity River doesn't make the water run clear. And holiness doesn't just transfer around on accident from one holy item or person or uh, anything, just casually. It doesn't just casually transfer. No, it doesn't become holy. The priests figure this out. They answer it correctly. Um, what I think is funny is Haggai doesn't actually answer the question. He just moves on. Uh, instead, he asks a second question to reveal the other side of the same coin. So Haggai asks, if someone defiled by contact with a corpse touches any of these, does it become defiled? Basically, if someone takes the bread, if someone takes the stew or the wine or the oil after having touched a dead body, which isn't that crazy for priests in this time. So if they take these things after having just touched a dead body, then does the food become defiled? You just touched a dead body, now you're touching the food. Is the food defiled now? So the priests quickly go through their, their mental maps of Judaic law. They land on this rule in Leviticus. Whoever touches anything made unclean by a dead person will remain unclean until evening, and it is not to eat from the holy offerings unless he has bathed his body with water. 
This is a known rule. This is something that they know. They follow this regularly. If the priests were to come in contact with a dead body, then they themselves are defiled and unclean until they break away from the people to an outcast camp and cleanse themselves from their uncleanness. So it's an obvious answer to them. The priests answered, it becomes defiled. The reverse point is made. Holiness can't be transmitted, but unholiness can. And unholiness can be transmitted in a quick, defiling, off-putting, and unsettling way. My kids' dirty hands dirtied my walls. The sick people make the healthy people unwell. The spicy food overpowers the bland food. The Trinity River infests the bottle over Ozarka with like every bacteria known to North Texas. How often does a girl start dating a guy because she'll be the one to fix him? Right? You're not going to fix him. Holiness doesn't just transmit by getting close to it. On the other hand, unholiness is transferable and highly contagious. I'm sure the priests look at Haggai, just like waiting for a reason that they're being asked these seemingly strange questions. They're like, can we get back to building the temple? Why are you asking us these questions? And Haggai gives them their answer. Haggai replies, so is this people, and so is this nation before me. This is the Lord's declaration. And so is every work of their hands. Even what they offer there is defiled. Haggai already knew the answers to the priestly questions, but God wants the questions answered so that their heart condition can be truly revealed. In the same way that uncleanness defiles what it touches, so are these people, so are this nation before God. And not just in their current state, but in everything that they have put their effort forth to do, it is defiled. If they don't turn from their self-centered state of spiritual apathy and delayed obedience, then whatever they build will be impure as the bodies of the dead. When the people return back from their captivity in Babylon, when they come back, they immediately went and built altars to worship God. When they came back, they immediately started celebrating the religious customs that had been just completely erased by the Babylonians. When they do things that someone from the outside world would see and say, wow, these guys are doing all the godly things, God saw their unclean hearts and their selfish intentions, and they declared those good religious things defiled in his sight. They believed that by being a part of holy things, that they themselves had become holy, as if being in proximity to holiness allows you to catch holiness. But the holiness of the temple was not rubbing off on them. The opposite was true. Their sin is what had become contagious. Their work was unclean because their sinful hearts had defiled the work. What was meant to be a display of God's grand presence among his people had now become a display of the pride among God's people. Remember, these are people who had misplaced their priorities. These are people who forgot to obey. These are people who believed that their own personal gain should take precedence over their union with God. These are people who 
God shakes them into course correction. God shifts their perspective to something eternal, and yet their hearts never change. Only their actions do. And then they expect their hearts to just consequently catch the holiness of their actions. It doesn't work like that. Holiness isn't contagious. They've become excellent actors for the Lord. They have their parts to play. They're learning their lines. They learn their blocking. They're following their direction. But at the end of the day, when the cameras turn off and the lights go dim, they put their scripts down and they turn back into the person they were all along at their core. And then they want God to give them the Oscar for it. They think they've earned his favor from the way that they've skillfully recited their monologues. They want him to be impressed by their excellent acting and then reward them with blessing and righteousness. They expect him to pour providence all over their lives just because they did the bare minimum while people were watching. God never wanted spiritual impersonators. He wanted people who would embody his will and his way from the depths of their hearts. He never wanted people to just blindly obey him. He wanted people who would follow him from a place of deserved love. And if you're looking to earn God's favor so he can bless you, or if you think you've lost God's favor because of your inaction, or if you think God will be pleased with you because of the work that you do for him, or if you're waiting around for blessings as if you've done anything to deserve them, or if you're delaying further obedience to God until he finally shows you some favor, or if you think that the goodness of God is dependent on you in any way whatsoever, then you have come out of your spiritual alignment to love godly things more than you love God. You love the attention you get by doing good things. You like the way you feel when good things happen to you. You appreciate the fulfillment and the noticeability of having done something noteworthy, but because your motivation is self-satisfaction, you'll never find the approval or blessing from God. You aren't going to reap holy benefit by fulfilling holy tasks. You become an actor looking for admiration instead of becoming a willing servant who's given their heart to full devotion of God. You can only reap holiness by aligning your heart to the one who is truly holy, Jesus himself. And I get it. We want to do our best. We want to display a certain level of performance. We want to earn his favor. This is like my love language here. I want to show him how good I can be for him. It's our natural inclination to want to prove ourselves, but doing so would negate the very definition of grace that he's bestowed to us. He proves his love to us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That has nothing to do with our output. It has everything to do with his bountiful and beautiful grace. We aren't the authors of holiness Jesus brought holiness to us when he died for us, so then we accept that truth. We're good with his grace in the moment of salvation. We say, I accept your grace. I know that I can't save myself. Thank you for that. Love that. Love the grace. But then we mistakenly fall back into the dangerous cycle. Yes, grace is good. We got it. He saved us. Now, let's work as hard as we can to impress him. If I can just do everything, if I could just read his word X number of times this week, if I could just give 
X number of dollars to the church, if I could just be kind to X number of people that I encounter, then maybe I'll become more holy and God will bless me. This is a perpetual and misleading slope that we fall down in our attempts to stand upward. Listen, you can do great things without God. I hate to even say that out loud, but I know lots of really wonderful people who don't know Jesus who do awesome things. Pharisees followed all the rules. And by any standard, they were law-abiding people who did everything right, but they didn't follow Jesus. We have to be, follow, we have to be cautious to follow Christ and not just to follow Christianity. Otherwise, we get stuck in this trap of doing all the right things, but not for the right purpose. Of doing good stuff, trying to be a better person, trying to do all the, all the good stuff, trying to be a certain way, trying to project ourselves in a way that will glorify God, but really we're trying to glorify ourselves. We have to be cautious. You don't become holy from doing holy things. It doesn't rub off that way. It's not contagious. Jesus is the source of holiness, not the things we do. In truth, the things we do often just end up being aligned with what is defiled and unholy. And that's what spreads. If you want something that's contagious, start acting unholy. That stuff's going to go everywhere. Holiness doesn't act that way. We can only receive holiness from Jesus, the author of holiness. Our poor intentions produce poor results. Even if we think that we are doing good, if it's from the wrong heart motivation, then even the good we do is defiled. We think we're being upstanding and righteous, when in reality we don't trust that the grace of God that was powerful enough to bring us to salvation is also strong enough to continue sanctifying us. It is strong enough. God's grace is strong enough to both save and to continue sanctifying you. And the sooner we come to that realization, the sooner we can start using our hands and our actions rooted from a heart full place of gratitude and admiration and dedication and love, as opposed to a root of selfish pride and ambition to impress the Almighty Lord. If following all the rules is your motivator, then you operate from fear. If blending in is your motivator, then you operate from pressure. If staying busy is your motivator, then you're operating from idolatry. And if being impressive is your motivator, then you operate from pride. You are not going to impress God. You can just remove that unnecessary burden from your shoulders. He's not going to look at us and say, whoa, impressive. But what he will say is, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful and trustworthy, and you have brought me great joy. And when grace is your motivator, then the works that you are privileged to take part in will be a marker of your good and faithful service to God himself, and that brings him great joy. Hear me out. God wants you to do the right thing. God wants you to do the good things. He is very clear, very clear, that his people will be known for the good things they do. But don't be so arrogant to think that he doesn't know what motivates you. Don't be so arrogant to think that he doesn't see your heart. So Haggai continues. Now from this day on, think carefully. Before one stone was placed on another in the Lord's temple, what state were you in? When someone came to a grain heap of 20 measures, it only amounted to 10. 
When one came to the wine press to dip 50 measures from the vat, it only amounted to 20. I struck you, all the work of your hands, with blight, mildew, and hail, but you didn't turn to me. This is the Lord's declaration. So we've got another one of these think carefully statements. Stop and consider. Remember, God loves his people. He wants them to see clearly. Think about the state you were in before you started obeying. Remember how you worked and you worked and you poured all that energy and all of your resources into what became nothing? Remember how your grain and your wine and your crops all just came back short? That was my wake-up call to you, to recalibrate your hearts. Thus far, you've shifted your actions, but you know, you're doing what I asked you to do. Now, be who I've asked you to be. From this day on, think carefully. From the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, think carefully. Is there any seed left in the granary? The vine, the fig, the pomegranate, the olive tree have not yet produced. But from this day on, I will bless you. Think carefully over the past few months. You've been rebuilding this temple. You've been doing the work that I've asked you to do. You're being faithful in action. Is there seed in the granary? The answer is no. No, there isn't. Not yet. The vines, the trees, they haven't produced fruit yet. They're doing the thing that they're supposed to do, but they're not seeing the rewards of their labor, and this is purposeful. We are really good at expecting quick results. If something doesn't promise a six-pack abs in like less than six weeks, then we're just not even going to try it. Like if I have to microwave my lunch longer than four and a half minutes, I'll probably just make a Taco Bell run instead. And now that I say that out loud, there's probably a correlation between the two. The point is, we can't expect an immediate turnaround. Just because you do something nice or kind or decent or even godly doesn't mean that you can just expect a blessing within one to three business days. And if this is your expectation, well, then again, you're, you're operating from a place of arrogance that you deserve better. You're operating from a place of pressure or pride, or fear, or any other self-motivated desire, instead of from a heart that's just willing and even desirous to serve its king. Our response to God's holiness should be wholehearted devotion. And from that wholeheartedness comes actions that are rooted from a heart that is devoted to God. God knows that this time, when he's talking to the people, this time, the people have received the message. And they take it to heart, and he makes them this promise. From this day on, I will bless you. As soon as they stopped expecting their works and their glory to sustain them, only then were they able to fully rely on his grace to grant them what they really needed. From this day on, I will bless you. Stop expecting your works to sustain you. You didn't trust yourself for salvation. Stop trusting yourself for spiritual maintenance. Stop expecting everything good to happen when you do something that just kind of resembles goodness. Instead, align yourself with the one who is truly good. Listen to his prompts. Prioritize his ways. Follow his patterns and fall into his rhythms. And eventually you'll recognize that the blessing pouring into your life is a consequence of your heart alignment. 
not a consequence of your hand's productions. And as soon as they listened with a heart of humility, as soon as they accepted the message of forgiveness instead of vainly seeking their own glory, God was able to bring forth the true nature of his blessed kingdom. Their obedience didn't make them more holy, but it did align them with the best life that God had intended for them to have, and thus they finally see the benefit of his holiness. And so can we. And this leads us to the fourth, the final word from Haggai. And this is a beautiful one. Haggai's other messages are all for the people as a whole. But this one actually goes out on the same day as the previous one. And it goes out to one person, not the nation. It goes to Zerubbabel by himself. And Zerubbabel is a really interesting character because when the Babylonians annihilated the temple, when they took the Jewish people captive, he would have only been a child. Like, he would have been a young guy. Uh, But not just any child. He was heir to the throne. His grandfather, Jehoiachin, was the king when the Babylonians took over. So while everyone else mourns the loss of their home and their nation, Zerubbabel is also mourning the loss of a throne. He grows up under Babylonian captivity and without the promise of, of the life that his family had given him. He learns how to serve God in, under a pagan king. And so then when the Jews are released from their captivity, the Persian king Darius puts Zerubbabel back in charge as governor of the nation. Not king, as was promised by his ancestry, but governor under a different king's rule. And he's the guy who's in charge of the whole rebuild the temple fiasco. He's the one who is probably the most discouraged through all of this. Because the failure and the weight of the project is a reflection on his leadership. So when Haggai comes to him with a message of hope, I want you to know that it settles into his heart in a very different level. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and destroy the power of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overturn chariots and their riders, horses, and their riders will fall each by his brother's sword. So God speaks to Zerubbabel through Haggai, the prophet, and reminds him of who is really on the throne. He reminds him of who is truly the powerful one. He uses specific references to past events to speak to a victorious future. He tells them, remember that I am the God who overturned the chariots of Pharaoh and led my people to a great exodus. Remember, I am the one who brought down the walls of Jericho. I am going to one day shake the heavens and the earth and everything that rests in the strength of man will be destroyed in glory in comparison to my power. The things that appear to be strong now will equate to nothing when God's strength is fully on display. And soon, God will recreate the earth to dwell in physical presence with his people forever. Zerubbabel and God's people are rebuilding this temple in a fallen Jerusalem. But God is building a new Jerusalem that will one day be the very epicenter of his rule and victorious reign. And that should encourage and excite us as much as it was meant to encourage Zerubbabel. This is just like a sliver of what's to come. God wins, and your greatest blessing is to be on his side. The book of Hebrews actually quotes from this portion of Haggai's prophetic word. The audience of Hebrews are discouraged people. 
They're being lured in every direction by people whose philosophies are skewing and twisting the gospel message. And when the people need to be encouraged, the author of Hebrews pulls out the same passage that Haggai used to encourage Zerubbabel. It says this, His voice shook the earth at that time, but now he has promised. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And this is even better because the author of Hebrews interprets it for us, so we don't have to guess what it's talking about. This expression, yet once more, indicates the removal of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what is, shake, what is not shaken might remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. By it, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Zerubbabel is leading a grand rebuilding project of God's temple. He's heading up the charge that will one day see God's presence fully realized again with his people. But one day, everything that is made by the hands of man will fall in ruin when tested by God's might. What remains is what matters. And what we'll find is that our self-motivated advances will be the first pillars to turn to rubble. And this isn't a reason to fear Rather, a reason to be thankful and reverent and in awe that we serve the almighty God of armies who wins. On that day, this is the declaration of the Lord of armies, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant. This is the Lord's declaration and make you like my signet ring, for I've chosen you. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. A signet ring is it's a literal ring that the, the king wears with his crest or uh, his emblem engraved on the face of the ring. He would use it as like a seal, a stamp of approval that he had asserted his authority. The king could send delegates in his place, and as long as they had the ring to stamp the document, it was as if the king himself was using it. And what's unbelievable, such a full circle moment to this whole story of Haggai, is that this signet ring was also used as a picture of Zerubbabel's own grandfather, the one who got them into Babylonian captivity. The signet ring is also used as a picture of the disgrace and evil that he had done in the sight of God. Jeremiah 22 says, As surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would still pull you off. I will deliver you into the hands of those who want to kill you, those you fear, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon and the Babylonians. Jehoiachin, grandfather of Zerubbabel, even if I had given you my full authority, which I haven't, I would rip that ring off your finger and send you away for your evil disservice to my name. And what happened? They were delivered to the Babylonians, just like God had said. So then, when God tells Zerubbabel that he will make him like his signet ring, it, this is a statement that in all the difficulties, in every disappointment, in every failure, in every time that he's turned his back away from God, he has still been chosen as a representation of God's own authority. He has been chosen in this beautiful picture of grace and restoration. Regardless of his family history, regardless of the failure of his father, 
regardless of the baggage and the injustice and the unstacked odds against him, Zerubbabel would forever be part of the story of redemption. Once God's people were evil and cast into foreign captivity, now you, Zerubbabel, have led the charge back to a restored union with the Almighty God, and you have my full support and backing. What your former, former geological tree couldn't accomplish, I will do through your future line, and you will forever be told in the story of deliverance. And so Zerubbabel fathered Abiud. Abiud fathered Eliakim. Eliakim fathered Azor. Azor fathered Zadok. Zadok fathered Achim. Achim fathered Eliad. Eliad fathered Eleazar. Eleazar fathered, fathered Methan. Methan fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who's called the Messiah. The Messiah comes with no disclaimers of supposed holiness. His holiness is true and active and trustworthy. For this kind of high priest we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted among the heavens. And this is the kind of Savior we have. This is the God that Haggai proclaims to the nations. This is why we can take Haggai's advice, humble ourselves, recalibrate our priorities and our perspectives, and live our lives from a vantage point of a heart that is fully in service to God. This is the God that Zerubbabel would choose to follow. He is the highest priest. He is an image of perfect holiness. He is a personification of blamelessness. He can redeem any broken family. He can set free any captive. He operates from a place of action. And he can take what is both defiled and unholy and make it clean in his sight. And he wants to eternally dwell with his people so that he dedicated himself personally to be your sacrifice. He's the almighty king of armies and he will fight for his people. He stands apart from our sinful human ways and he is forever exalted among the heavens. This is the God of Haggai and this is the God you serve. And with that, would you all bow your heads with me as we reflect on God's word together? Holiness matters to God because he is holy. We can pretend to be people who are holy on our own merits and on our own devices, but at the end of the day, we're just frauds. Christ displays his holiness through us, but only with hearts that have declared allegiance to his will and to his way. The book of Haggai is written as a patient, loving rebuke to God's people with great news in the end. You don't have to pretend that you are anything other than who God created you to be. You don't have to prove yourself to be worthy or holy. Jesus already did that. And if you haven't trusted in that glorious truth, if you haven't trusted Jesus as your Savior, I want to challenge you the question, why not? What's holding you back from trusting in Jesus? Is it a reliance on self? Is it a pressure of conformity? Is it because you haven't found time yet or you've been hurt in the past or you think you're not worthy? Listen, none of us are worthy. That's the beauty of the salvation of Jesus Christ. And if you want to fully understand what that means, I want to challenge you now 
There are deacons standing in the back of this room who would love to show you, not to pressure you, but to lovingly display to you how the holiness of Jesus can transform your life. And if you want to know more, I want you to get up and go talk to them now. You don't have to wait any longer. You don't have to be anxious about making a move for Jesus forever. Today is your day. And now is your time. Learn what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And to God's people, I ask this. Are you still relying on the grace of God that saved you to also continue sanctifying you? Or are you trusting in your own attempts at holiness? Remember this. We may all see the actions of your hands, but God sees the state of your heart. He knows where your motivation lies. He knows if you're aligning yourself with his ways without operating from a transformed heart. Can we do something together? Let's all together think in your mind of the last good thing you did. Big or small, just think about it. The last purposefully positive interaction, the last act of goodwill to service or someone, whatever it may be, what was your motivation? Was it so the person would like you more? Was it so you would like you more? Or so God would like you more? Was it from a place of arrogance? Was it from a place of fear? A place of manipulation? What I've found is I do my best to do a lot of good things, but I don't do my best at being motivated from a place of obedience and servitude to God. I'm not relying on his holiness to be displayed through me. I'm expecting my own pseudo-holiness to bring attention to me. That is deeply and darkly problematic. Holiness isn't contagious. You're not just going to gain holiness by being a part of holy things. Has your threshold for abstaining from unclean things lowered? Are you finding yourself more engaged with the things or with the people or with the attitudes or actions that are unholy? You know what I've noticed? Our motivations for engaging in what is unholy is eerily similar to our motivations to reject fake holiness. It comes from a place of arrogance, from fear, manipulation, pride, acceptance. We are still unholy. In fact, we become less like Jesus when we engage in unholy things because unholiness is contagious. It does spread. And if you're not actively in reliance on your God of armies to fight on your behalf, then you will lose that battle. Follow Christ. Not just the ways of Christ with blind obedience. Follow Christ from a place of obedience. Follow Christ from a serving heart. Follow Christ with willingness and with loving trust that his grace will sustain you. Trust that his holiness will be what upholds you. God, we are just deeply aware of how broken we've turned the tables. We've allowed our view of self to surpass our understanding of you. We've relied on a a bloated sense of false humility, and we haven't been trusting in your holy grace to sustain us. And God, we ask collectively for your forgiveness. You are waiting for your people to be faithful to you. We want to be faithful to you. 
Allow us the vulnerability to remove the projection of holiness. Not as a display of our goodness, but as a reflection of yours. We love you. I love you. And this is all in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen.